All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? How's it going? How's your hand? How's your stomach? How's your knee? How's your foot? My foot is okay, I guess. I don't know. You know, I get, I'm going to have to unwrap it like some sad present in a couple weeks to see if the goddamn thing healed. I've been taking calcium. Calcium. I, I don't, I don't know. Some of you might've misheard me when I said I was taking calcium. Uh, I got more emails about that than the actual, uh, question I was asking, which was, does calcium, oh, I did it again. Does calcium affect your gut health? And everyone chimed in. It was probably the magnesium that's in the supplement, but, uh, a lot of, um, almost aggravated neurotic, uh, reaction to me mispronouncing calcium as calcium. Calcium, I don't even know if it's a thing, but it has been the way I've been saying it. Calcium. It's like uh, Kit. <laughs> she, she was, uh, I, now I'm pretty sure about this. I'm not sure, you know, if you're on the West Coast, I'm pretty sure it's Knudsen's milk. Am I wrong? Not Knudsen's. I, I mean, you know, it's a, it's an easy mistake, but it's not adding a syllable like calcium, calcium. Yeah, I got I got the gamut. You know, some people say it's good. Some people say it doesn't absorb. It's in your bloodstream, can harden your arteries, helps with kidney stones, doesn't help with kidney stones. You know, might be hard on this or that. Might be great for this or that. Who the fuck knows? I guess you can take all the studies and documentations about these random supplements and just run with it. I, everything's got side effects, but these things, you know, they, they don't, no one knows, but, uh, we'll see. Thank you for all the input on the, uh, calcium pronunciation and on the possible good and bad effects of magnesium and calcium. Okay. Listen, listen, listen to me. This is kind of a great show here that we're about to do that. You're about to hear Rodrigo Prieto. Uh, is a cinematographer. He's nominated at this year's Oscars for Best Cinematography for Killers of the Flower Moon. He also did the cinematography for Barbie. He also did a lot of other films, Babel, Brokeback Mountain, The Wolf of Wall Street, The Irishman, 21 Grams, Argo, many more. It's an amazing conversation, and I'll explain why in a minute, but I, I do want to point out that Rodrigo is not the only Oscar nominee we have from Killers of the Flower Moon. Lily Gladstone... Yeah, is on Monday's show, and she's nominated for Best Actress. Here's a little preview of that episode. Enjoy. You must be aware of that when you have to approach a significantly Native character. Right. To, to make sure the humanity is correct. Yeah, when it's a, essential to the story that that character is Native because it's getting out of history. Then yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was a little resistant early on when I was told that I'd be pigeonholed and typecast because I was like, well, Native people are everywhere. Right. There's a lot of people that you watch, unfollow, and probably have on your playlists that sure. you have no idea are Native, but yeah. they're there. I mean, I met a Blackfeet guy in Austria named Klaus Bukowski. We're everywhere. <laughs> 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 but, um, yeah, and when I was playing, like, for a role like Molly— yeah. Even though there's nobody alive who remembers her specifically, there's absolutely a legacy and there are descendants and there's people who are her living flesh and blood today. And, you know, the whole reign of terror is still an open wound for the community. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways that you need to approach it. And I hate the word. I both hate and respect the word authenticity because authenticity at a surface level feels like you're appraising a rug. 
you know? Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about that, too, because the, the idea of authenticity, I think what I said was that, like, if I was my authentic self, I would do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I am with you on that. <laughs> Lot, for, far enough into this campaign, I just want to be a slug for a minute. <laughs> right. But you do, like, there, there, there are components of, of, of charm and vulnerability that I think has been kind of put under this umbrella of authenticity. Mm-hmm. That if you are candid enough and you are empathetic and exude a certain amount of vulnerability, I think it's just culturally surprising. So people are like, oh, that's a real person right there. Right. It's their authentic self. Right. Right. And that element, I think, is something that is easy for people to access with my performances on screen. Yeah. Which maybe why you pick up on this um, people projecting whatever they want. Yeah, sure. Which is... Um, That's good. Yeah. It's especially if you want um, audiences to have empathy for your character and what they're going through, which was essential for this story. Because for so long, the focus was only on the FBI element. Oh, you mean building the movie? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then um, in building Molly, there's there were a lot of responsibilities to hold. Responsibility, first and foremost, to her grandchildren, mm-hmm. like her family. Did you meet them? I did. I met Margie and I met Billy. Margie, her granddaughter, I can see likely was one of the biggest ways Gran was able to draw Molly as mm-hmm. a as a character in his book was um because when you're with Margie that's a lot of that is there. And a lot of Margie went into Molly. You okay. know, we only had one, you know, a good significant long amount of time together. We had a meeting. What did Leo she do? was there too. You know, we were just kind of talking about how how this love story would maybe be possible. And though Margie was the one who told who told Marty at a meeting um, Gray Horse had held with, you know, all the filmmakers, she got up and said, you have to remember these two loved each other. Um, in my meeting with Leo, she was also at the same time very skeptical about how that could have been possible and how we would possibly be able to play it. Yeah, I... It's one of the the things that sticks in my mind mm-hmm. about the movie, more, more almost more than anything else, was that you know how does Leo or how does that character or or that person necessarily, and who I'm sure is not you know as compelling as Leo in real life, <laughs> but how do you how do you hold both of those worlds in place and still honor the love? How do you know right. that what you're expected to do is kill your wife? Right. And, and and then have this compartmentalized mm-hmm. love for them. I, I thought it was it was very tricky. Yeah, and I think he did an incredible job with an almost impossible character to play. The full talk with Lily Gladstone is on Monday's episode. And that was a great talk. I'm telling you, man, you know, for years with actors in general, sometimes it's it's always good, but you never know. You never know where actors are at, but these last few I've done have just been great. America Ferrara, Mark Ruffalo, uh, Lily Gladstone. What a pleasure. You know, because it's so easy to become obsessed with whatever that woman's amazing presence is. You know, it's just, it's easy because you're like, what is going on? She's in a different time zone than other people spiritually emotionally, psychologically, seemingly that way, right? And I've been talking about her since I saw uh, Certain Women, the Kelly Reichardt movie, and I talked to Reichardt about it. That was the first time I saw her. That was uh, a while back. And then she shows up in Flowers of uh, 
of the killer moon. Killers of the flower moon. <laughs> Fucking fuck. You know, the calcium uh, involved in flowers of the killer moon. <laughs> yeah. God damn it. But uh, what an amazing conversation, and I was excited to have it. So that is Monday's episode. Let me do this now. I have shows in L.A. next week, Largo on Wednesday, February 28th, and the Elysian on Thursday, February 29th. I'm in Portland, Maine at the State Theater on Thursday, March 7th, Medford, Massachusetts at the Chevalier Theater on Friday, March 8th, Providence, Rhode Island at the Strand Theater on Saturday, March 9th, Terrytown, New York at the Terrytown Music Hall on Sunday, March 10th, Atlanta, Georgia. I'm at the Buckhead Theater on Friday, March 22nd. We might be adding another show. Boise, Idaho, I'm at the Egyptian Theater on Saturday, March 23rd as part of Comedy Fort at the Tree Fort Music Fest. Madison, Wisconsin at the Barrymore Theater on Wednesday, April 3rd. Might add a second show there, too, I think. Milwaukee, Wisconsin at the Turner Hall Ballroom on Thursday, April 4th. Chicago at the Vic Theater on Friday, April 5th. Minneapolis at the Pantages Theater on Saturday, April 6th. Is that where I might add the second show? I'll let you know. Austin, Texas at the Paramount Theater on Thursday, April 18th as part of the Moon Tower Comedy Festival. Go to WTFPod.com slash tour for tickets. I actually had uh, an old buddy over and it was kind of a surprise. I didn't know it was going to happen, but me and Dave Attell uh, taped a little conversation in here, recorded a bit of business. And I rarely see that guy. Now, this guy's a guy, Attell is a guy I've known for, geez, Whew, fucking 35 years. And I think we've had now two long conversations, both on this show. So that'll be coming up. That was fun. It was fun to see old friends because now you have the talk is different. The conversation is different. We're veterans. We're old guys. What else? Oh, I remember what I wanted to tell you. I wouldn't say I complain about not being recognized by various uh, awards and communities of artists. I wouldn't say I complain about it, but I would say that I would enjoy one statue of some kind. I mean, I've got a couple podcasting statues. That's not nothing, but it's not, you know, the other ones. It's not the, the fancy gold ones of different sorts or another. But I got some news yesterday that I have been nominated for a WGA award, a Writers Guild uh, award for uh, my writing on my special from bleak to dark uh that's that's exciting and i'm i'm grateful for it and i'm happy to be recognized by that guild that's a good one very flattered and i didn't see it coming and neither did anybody else because i haven't heard from anybody <laughs> but but i know i know all right listen this conversation with rodrigo prieto is unique cinematography dping director of photography whatever you want to say and, and actually he told me that they don't they no longer have best cinematographer awards at some of the major award ceremonies and the dps and cinematographers same thing are you know a little upset about that as they should be and the thing about cinematography as you may or may not know is it's the whole thing it's all of it I mean, the director has a vision, but it's on the cinematographer to capture that vision, but also to work in a symbiotic way, in a collaborative way with wardrobe, with production design, with sound, with the actors. I mean, the, the cinematographer is where it comes in first. 
He sees it all first. She sees it all first. They see it all first. And they have to realize in a collaborative way, most of the time, the director's vision. But the depth of knowledge and tools one must have was is baffling and, and mind-blowing to me. I mean, talking to this guy uh, was, was really fucking mind-blowing. Rodrigo. I mean, he has done such diverse projects. You know, to go from Killers of the Flower Moon to Barbie and to, you know, and having the resume that he has... It's kind of astounding to talk to him about how he thinks about, you know, shots, about lights, about tones, about film, about, I mean, the poetry involved in cinematography is deep. And I imagine it's deeper uh, for each individual uh, cinematographer approaches it in their own way. But this guy was fucking fascinating uh, to me because I remember... You're, there's stuff that goes into film that, you know, just into frames of film that you watch into a scene that you watch that you're never going to know the depth of reason or intention of, of a director, but more so a cinematographer and how they construct that, that scene or that frame or that film stock. What you're not, you're just going to watch the thing and whatever you know they put into it, you're going to absorb somehow. But the depth of it is fucking mind blowing. Like I once, I remember, I don't remember what film class it was. You know, we were studying this scene in The Godfather, the first Godfather. And it's the scene where the Godfather is in the office and he's meeting with the Turk, with Salazzo. That's a scene I talked to James Kahn about. It was the first scene he shot and he told me he wasn't sure really who Sonny was on that day of shooting. And he hadn't put that character together totally until he realized he was Don Rickles. <laughs> but when they're when you're seeing Marlon Brando's side of it, when when The Godfather is talking, Vito Corleone, you know he's wearing a, a brown suit. His collar's a little loose. The the color palette is sort of brown. There are old pictures in the background. You know you see the desk and what you feel subconsciously, as it was pointed out to me, was that this is the, 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 the past. This is the, the old days. This is the, uh, the, the, this is the, uh, the old guard. Because then when they cut to Salazzo, to the Turk, his side of it, he's wearing a, a spiffy tailored suit. His hair is, is shiny. There's a, a green plant behind him, and he represents the new way. Now, it didn't and well for Salazzo. But, um, but nonetheless, you know, that was on the production designer and the cinematographer. And like, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, that was all on purpose that somebody, because, you know, what would it take to do that? I mean, and then you think like, was that all Coppola saying like, no, I, I really need this side of this shot to, to have this, this look old and look, have this vibe. Maybe he did. But if it was, it was a collaboration with the cinematographer, the genius Gordon Willis, right? But, but I don't know. I just remember at that time, I was like, wow, you know, this making a movie business is, is much deeper than I ever realized. How do you even do it? How do you even find these people to make these decisions? I mean, whose vision is that? That's crazy to, on that, on the minutia, on the micro like that. Now- Talking to uh, Rodrigo, you're going to find 
in this conversation that, you know, it's all intentional and some of it gets pretty deep when he talks about, you know, the look of different film stocks, you know, going back to, you know, still photography, but the entire arc of Rodrigo's career uh, from when he was younger and how he got into this is pretty fascinating. But listen to what he's thinking about when he's shooting the native people versus the white people. I mean, this is, there's a poetry to it and it's a poetry that is informed by a very deep skill set that, you know, puts together the look of a movie in a way that has meaning to him and is sourced historically through effect and, and, and sensibility and look, but to, 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 to us just watching the movie, we're just sort of like, that was a good scene. That, that looked cool. Or, you know, it seemed like, did you, did you like the effect that the lights were having? But it's just so much fucking deeper than that. I mean, it was just, it was mind blowing to me. Totally. And I think you're going to dig this conversation. Why don't I do it? Why don't I let you listen to it already? Uh, you can watch Killers of the Flower Moon on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, Rodrigo is nominated for the Best Cinematography Oscar for that film. And this is me talking to him. We're the new old guys, and there are things that we just missed, mm-hmm. like how to uh, uh, in, innately interact with our portable technology. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, I was in, in, in high school. We didn't even have laptops or any of that. No, you know? yeah. no, maybe a pager. Right. Yeah, pages. I remember that. You know, you had to see what number was coming in. Oh, gosh. And call back. No computers. Right. Like, where'd you you go to high school? Mexico City. I feel like I have to go to Mexico City. Yeah. No, you should. I mean, everybody says it's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty great. My, my, one of my daughters. Yeah. uh, You know, we moved here when my daughters were five and six. And the, the one who was five is 29 now. She decided I'm going back to Mexico City. Two years ago. Really? And she loves it. That's, uh, well, I can see that. Don't you ever think that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs> I mean, Los Angeles is okay. It is. I, I do like LA because my uncle, my mother's brother, yeah. lived here. My mother was born in Montana. They were born in Montana. And, really? And, and yeah. And, um, uh, so he lived here in L.A., and, and uh, he had an, an antique shop, and he did tarot, and, you know, he was kind of into the occult. He, he, <laughs> yeah, he was a ballet dancer back in his oh day. Oh, my God, that's a lot of things. So he owns so, an antique shop, he's a tarot card reader, yep. and he's a ballet dancer. So that's why I love L.A. I love come to see my uncle, and they took us to Universal Studios and all that stuff. And he's from Montana? Yeah. And he ends up like a, a dancing witch. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> Why wouldn't you want to come to L.A.? Yeah, my uncle Sidney. Oh my God! So wait, so how did your how did your parents get together? They met in New York. Oh. My, my mother actually went to to Pratt Institute uh, to decide what design. The, the, yeah, for design. Yeah, and it was called commercial art. And my uncle, her brother, was there in New York in, in the ballet. You know, and and uh, so she he was in the ballet. Yeah. Yeah. A ballet dancer from Montana. Yes. Wow. Yes. It's kind of a Brokeback Mountain what's story. His na- what's his name? Sidney Stamball. Oh, Stamball. What's Stamball. It? That's my mother's last name. How, what kind of name is that? It's uh, My mother, you say it was from Prussia. Oh. But, uh, yeah, not that common. But uh, it turns out when I did, you know, a DNA test. Yeah. 
I'm a, a lot, like 47% from Irish. Irish? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's weird. That's crazy. <laughs> I know. So they met in New York, but your dad grew up in Mexico? Yes, my, my dad's Mexican. And then uh, he, he went to do a master's degree in aeronautical engineering. Oh. And uh, yeah, so, and they met at the international house. Yeah. And she was there, and I guess- That was it. They liked each other, and that was it. My God, so what? So your dad just left Mexico for college? Yeah, for this master's degree. He yeah. did college in Mexico City. Yeah. And, but before that, he, he spent 10 years in the United States from the age of 2 to 12 because my grandfather was sent out in exile from, from Mexico. He was a troublemaker, and, and this is in the 1923. Really? So uh, well, that was back before they just shot people, I guess. Uh, that was when they shot people. <laughs> yes, he was. So that's why he got out. Yeah, the, he, he started a rebellion, an actual insurrection against uh, uh, the government at the time. This against was, the president? Yeah, against the president. Because uh, he, he was in government, my yeah. grandfather, and he was uh, at the same time mayor of Mexico City. He was in Congress at the age of 28, and, and he was also uh, elected governor of his home state, San Luis Potosí. Yeah. But he got into a fight with the president at that time, and the president was threatening to kill him. So he actually started this insurrection, which, by the way, this famous Mexican director, Emilio Fernandez, uh, El Indio, who... By the way, another story they yeah. say is the model for the Oscar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, he was a soldier in this rebellion. Okay. And and he also had to go on exile uh, at that time. Uh, and, that's, and that's where he posed for the Oscar? That's exactly right. <laughs> and that's where he got into filmmaking and all that. So anyway, everything's kind of weirdly connected. And you're part of it. I'm definitely, yeah, I'm definitely part of that. You're part of history. the legacy of weirdness. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But how, do you have, uh, like, I know you worked with Inaritu mm-hmm. uh, many times. Mm-hmm, yeah. I've talked to Guillermo del Toro mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Caron, did you work with him? Uh, only on a commercial once. And, oh, yeah. Uh, we know each other. We're, we're friends. But, yeah. but is there a crew? Y'all seem around the same age. Yeah. And But did you, like, is there, like, a uh, some sort of collective that you're <laughs> all part of at some point in time early on in Mexico? Nothing official. Mm. But it was it was a, a time they called it, like, the new Mexican wave of cinema, you know, in the yeah. 90, yeah. Yeah, 90s, beginnings of the 2000s. And uh, I actually worked in Alfonso Cuaron's first film, besides yeah. that commercial, but as a second unit cinematographer and director, I was finishing film school at the time and they hired me for free and the second uh, unit guys like you know just go out and shoot the field that sort of yeah, thing. everyone's leaving uh, could <laughs> yes. you get that pickup shot that we didn't get earlier that's exactly what i was doing in the <laughs> inserts and a lot of condoms passing from hand to hand i did a lot of shots of that of condoms yeah, passing condoms. From hand to, yeah. for for what reason were they well the, the film was a comedy about AIDS, actually. Oh, okay. And uh, so, yeah, well, a character gets a wrong diagnosis that he has AIDS. He's yeah. very promiscuous. And yeah. it's a comedy. And yeah. so, yes, there, uh, for the credit sequence, I shot all these hands passing condoms from one to the other, or things like that, so airplanes. That was your first uh, real gig? That was. So when you went to the theater, you're like, oh, wait till the end, that's me, the condoms. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yep. But did you, so you you went to film school there? Yes, and, and that's how I got that job. Um, you know, I was in, in film school, Centro de Capacitación Cinematográfica. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Lubezki, the DP of that film, uh, went to see my short films in, a, there was a show of, of student films in the Cineteca Nacional. 
And he liked what I'd been doing, and so he approached me and said, hey, would you shoot the second unit of uh, this film that we're doing? That, that was that for that part. Do you, know, do you remember what you were doing in the short films? What do you mean? Like what type of short well, films? Well, I mean, do you, do, has there anything that's... Because I know I, you just directed your first feature, right? That's right. <laughs> has anything... Do you, do, you, did you, do you ever look back at your old stuff and, and feel like, well, you know, that's a thing I do? Still. You know, it's interesting because not exactly... Uh, of course, yes, but uh, these things that uh, Chivo saw and then Alfonso were a reaction I think we had as a generation to Mexican cinema before us, like in the... 70s, 80s. What was that like? Well, uh, what was happening is that the the unions were so so tightly closed; right. it was impossible to get right. into you know cinema. It okay. was, uh, by the way, there was no non-union work. It was illegal to do non-union movies in the 70s. Yeah, in the 80s and even the 90s. Yeah, and uh, so uh, it became really stagnant. The look of films. They, 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 they were lit like black and white films, even though it was color. You know, it was just a... Was, very... it, was it just disposable entertainment? Were there artists? No, and... there were artists, too. I mean, yeah. there was uh, both. There was some, a lot of very commercial sort of uh, uh, soft porn, almost, films. Yeah. And that was uh, one genre. And, uh, and then there were also, the, you know, the festival films. But in total, maybe there were 10, 12 years uh, movies a year. Yeah. So there weren't, weren't oh, many wow. opportunities at all, right. you know. So it was kind of irresponsible to go to film school but what we were doing in school was just different we you know we were looking at movies from the rest of the world and then yes movies from hollywood and the lighting we were doing was very different you know soft light with the, just a different thing yeah and uh what happened is that producers and directors started no noticing what we were doing and then we we were hired and the rule was you could hire someone that was non-union as long as you paid the salary of a union person to the union Right. So they had to kind of pay double salary, but they paid us almost nothing. But that was a door that opened. That was a loophole that we all came in through. That's almost like a shakedown. Yeah, no, totally, 100%. <laughs> yes. So you can hire this guy that's not in the union, but you got to give us the, the money for the union guy. Yes, that's exactly And right. I don't care how much you pay that guy. Yep. We're not responsible for him. Nope. That's that's, that's how it went? What it was. and But luckily for us, because that's how we all started and- and, uh, you know, I got to do maybe, to shoot maybe five, six movies before the union finally came to me and asked me to join. Instead of me begging, which I had done, I had begged for them to let me in as an apprentice. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. And then finally they came to me, hey, we'd like you to join the union as a cinematographer. Okay, well, so that that completely changed. But it's so just, you know, was that, why was that, was that a government thing? I mean, why would they limit... You know, a, a fair uh, what w would seem like a potentially lucrative business right. or industry that much. Yeah, it was it was a government thing, and it was protecting the jobs of uh, those who were in the union, and and the unions were pretty strong, which you know it's a good thing, strong unions, of but, course. But in this case, uh, they were limiting their own scope and 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 not allowing new blood in, and yeah. that was just uh, it, it. It eventually became uh, totally counterproductive because now the union is like nothing. Now, it used to be like too strong and now it, it, does, it doesn't have any clout anymore uh, on Mexican and cinema. What were the stuff, what was the stuff that, you know, what drove you into filmmaking? For me, it was stop motion. 
actually. Mm. Oh, really? Yeah. I was, uh, as a child, I would do with my brother. We had, we did haunted houses at home. Sure. And I loved monsters and science fiction. And uh, so we, we did a little clay plasticine monsters, actually. And, yeah. And uh, like dioramas. With yeah, yeah, victims sure. Victims and gore. Sure. And, and my father had a Bell & Howell 8-millimeter camera. Okay. And... The, the little metal thing? Yes, that, that you could one. drop off a building? That sort of thing. I yes. think like Kubrick used those and dropped them off buildings for shots in Clockwork Orange. Yeah, must have been a, a Bolex in that case. I don't I don't know. Yeah. It's like those ones that were almost like encased in metal. Yes, yes, Bolex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, in this case, uh, similar, but eight millimeters. Right. It's much smaller. The format is tiny. So we you could actually shoot frame by frame. So he explained to us sure. how to animate our monsters yeah, yeah, and yeah. that was magical and that's what got me going that's what got me hooked not into i'm gonna be a filmmaker i had no, no real notion of that yeah for me it was oh i love this the way people react and my friends react to seeing these monsters like and magic. i'm gonna keep on doing it yeah yes. yeah yeah that's how it started well we had a guy on here now I, I feel bad i don't remember his name i think he did a movie that took him like decades to make i think it was called mad gods Phil Tippett. Oh, yeah, Phil Tippett. Yes, yes, of course. Yes. Master stop motion animator. Yeah. Yes, well, amazing. He did this movie, like, it took him decades. And it's crazy, oh, yeah. dude. Oh, I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it's it. It's crazy. <laughs> okay. You gotta watch it. I will. Uh, it, it, like, I, I don't know how we came upon it. But, you know, he's an interesting guy, and you, I, it, it, I don't even know if the, the movie was, you know, released in a big way, but I was very happy. I felt like I was like, well, this guy yeah. put his whole life into something. Yes, wow. Which is, yeah, Mad Gods was the name of it. Mad Gods. So when do you start refining that and, and realizing that there is a, a place for you to be in movies? What do you watch? Well, little by little, we started getting a little more sophisticated in what we were doing. Now we were... Uh, rewinding the film, doing double exposures, you know, those sorts of small visual and effects. editing actual film? Editing, uh, scratching the film to create, you know, oh, yeah, laser yeah. beams and <laughs> yeah. putting chlorine sure. on it to create explosions. Oh, yeah. Things like that. And uh, On 8 millimeter? Eight, yeah, first it was 8, then Super 8. And but then that, sound. It's still and, pretty meticulous work. Oh, my got, God, it's got, tiny. It was with a, <laughs> yeah. you know, loop. And, yeah. Like this one. Yeah. But, um... Then we started being aware of the people like Tippett or or uh, um, Ray Harryhausen. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Will's sure. O'Brien. Yeah, yeah. You know the uh, Jason uh, the, and the Argonauts. The Argonauts movies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. those type of movies were just magical for for me. Yeah. I think that's that was really inspiring. And and um, later, I started getting kind of into the photography side of it, but but I didn't understand yet for the longest time that. You could be a like a director, and separately there was a cinematographer. I was like, "What is that?" There's the the guy that's really responsible for the movie. Exactly. <laughs> Finally, I learned, and I said, "Okay, that's that, those are the ones that make movies." No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, and and also uh, eventually, someone told me you can actually go to film school. Yeah. Uh, a, a teacher in my high school. Yeah, I I didn't know. I thought it was going to be maybe. You know, a, a creative and, and an ad, ad agency. That was kind of what I thought, maybe. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Also, I guess my mother's uh, influence. She, I, I was um, also into graphic design and that sort of stuff. Sure. But, um, but then, you know, I learned that that was possible. So I decided, okay, I'm going to do that. But before I went to film school, yeah, I worked for a year in a still photography studio with a photographer called Nadine Markova, American woman in Mexico, an expat. She was incredible. So she was my mentor. So. So that's before. So every you're still doing processing. You're learning about films. Yeah. You're learning about chemicals. Yeah. You're trying to roll the uh, 
the negatives onto those loops in the dark. All that. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly all that. Yeah, it was but that's a important. Time. Oh, I don't yeah. know that. Like I, I don't know what they teach you. Maybe you've taught uh, cinematography recently. Mm. But is that is is knowing exposure not just not obviously exposure but film types a thing right. that people learn now. I don't know if they learn it, but it is important, at least to me, because even when shooting, say, with a digital camera and, and digital post-production, I still look at film emotion, uh, emotions as, as inspiration, and I emulate them, and well, the noticed, look of a negative. And, yeah, you know, that I noticed that because in, uh, well, I guess it was The Irishman, you're changing, it seems like you're changing stocks. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, it was, we were trying to make certain eras look like the still photography of the time. So that was Kodachrome or Ektachrome, right. which weren't movie film stocks. They right. were still photography stocks. But digitally, we, we were able to emulate those. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's awesome. So <laughs> in this, when you're working in the still studio, do you shoot? Yeah, I was I was shooting a little bit. She uh, sometimes let me. She didn't like product shots, for example. So sometimes she'd let me do the products. So she did all kinds of photography, everything, mostly portraits. fashion, portraits, oh, okay. and and but architecture, anything that came her way. She had this work ethic. Uh, you know, she was a workaholic, and I guess I I'm a bit of that too. You know, and and she was funny, and uh, yeah, she taught me about composition, and that's where I. Really started liking that, and in fact, I I pressured her to to go uh, to get back into cinema. She had done a couple of documentaries, yeah. So she was hired uh, to uh, be the cinematographer in a movie that was shot in Los Angeles called Welcome Maria, uh, with this actress Maria Victoria, yeah. And it was produced by Cantinflas' son, by the way. Cantinflas. Yes, Cantinflas. Yeah. So it was a very low budget movie, and I was the apprentice there. I, I came to L.A. and again. Loving LA because uh, you know with from the, history, the uncle, the history of my uncle and all yeah. that. Yes, I actually stayed at his place. Yeah, in in Hollywood. Did you get a tarot reading. La Mirada. Of course, always. <laughs> <laughs> he had this thing when he didn't tell you what he saw. Yeah, it, it was it was because he didn't want to tell negative things. Yeah. You know, if there was something bad in the future, he yeah. wouldn't tell you. What yeah. was terrifying. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that was. Um, that's where I thought, okay, this this thing, the camera lighting, this, this I remember the smell of the camera truck, for example, and yeah. the, the the oil uh, that you use for the cameras to lubricate the right. movement and all that stuff. I loved it so much. So um, when I went back to Mexico right after that shoot, I got right into film school and I decided I wanted to focus on cinematography. Okay, that was the focus. Yeah. Let's talk about how do you say content flaws. Cantinflas. Cantinflas. There we go. <laughs> he was a very important entertainer. Yes, he was. And he was what, ever present through everyone's childhood in Mexico? Yeah, definitely. He was on, on you know, on TV. His movies were <laughs> there all the time. I mean he he his heyday was perhaps more the fifties, sixties. Yeah. In the seventies he was still you know, doing some stuff. But yeah. but yeah, you saw him all the time. <laughs> he he had this thing. There was this <laughs> stick that maybe I'm doing right now myself, yeah. but that he would just talk uh, uh, gibberish, gibberish, yeah, Is gibberish, gib yeah. gibberish. But but it, it it kind of made sense, yeah. And he he would say it with a conviction. It'd be you know he'd sure. say all these words that sounded fancy, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and he just went on and on, and <laughs> everybody's looking at him like, what's he saying? <laughs> so now there's a, a word in Spanish yeah. that's cantimflear. Yeah. meaning you're doing that. You're you're just saying a lot of words and you're not saying anything. <laughs> That's his legacy. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. I might be. I might be in that legacy right now. So, 
so you go to school for how long? For four years? At least it was long. That that was about five. I say about five years because there wasn't a definite moment where you're. Oh, I'm done. So, you sure. know, you you just kept. Uh, you know, the beginning was intense and lots of you know classes and all that and a lot of things to shoot and learn and. But then by year three, four, five, yeah, you're just doing the 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 let's say the documentaries and then the pre thesis and then the thesis. So yeah. you're just shooting that stuff and editing and all that. Yeah. And no more classes, really. Yeah. So uh, I think it was about five years of, of that. But in the meantime, during the uh, last two years, that's when I started working. I started, you know, like in Alfonso's film and things like Making that. Making shorts? Making shorts and then starting to do like commercials and, you know, I, I, I did everything. Whatever came my way. I even I even did some, uh, e- e- what is it called? Uh, electronic news gathering. I was yeah, yeah. a news cameraman for, you know, freelance. Uh, wow. This was a time when... Uh, there was uh, this huge fraud in Mexico, and uh, Salinas de Gortari, who became president, and and the 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 Congress where they had all the votes yeah. uh, stored, yeah, just happened to burn. Oh boy, yeah. And and also, a, as the voting was happened, there was this whole thing with the computer system in Mexico. It broke down magically, you know. And suddenly, oh, he won. Uh-huh. You know, I was a news cameraman at the time, so I was in Congress. I remember filming. The opposition screaming yeah. and yelling and throwing papers. And uh, it, it, there was a congressman who had a heart attack. He survived. Yeah. But it was dramatic. Wow. So, uh, well, that's a, that gives you good experience. Yes, it does. <laughs> it's Again, it's like, uh, I think, like, when you watch, like, Kubrick, uh, like, Strangelove, mm. that, that documentary vibe when he's on the ground with the troops. Right. I think he had actually done some of that type of shooting where it has that feeling yeah. that, that's pretty vital. Like, it's a yeah. way of shooting. Yes. To, uh, well, right. I mean, it sounds like you got a lot of good experience before you even started. Yeah, that's right. So tell me, like, uh, let, let's play uh, play something out here. So I'm, I'm a director. Okay. Let's say I'm going to direct a movie, and I'm meeting you. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What do you need now to I'm know? I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> let's see if I get the job. <laughs> what, but in general... How do those? How does that? Tra- what transpires there? What do you need to know? What do you? What questions do you have? Mm. A director, any yeah. director, like what? You know, I say, oh, I got this idea for a movie. You know, it's the Lower East Side of New York. It's in the mid '90s. It's got kind of a gritty feel. The city's, you know, beginning to gentrify. Uh, there's, uh, like, what, what would you think? Well, uh, were you there in the '90s? Yes. And 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 uh, what were you doing? How did it feel? Well, it was interesting because, you know, there, there was a, a tremendous homeless uh, issue down on the Lower East Side and that there was riots in Tompkins Square Park about the squatters. There were homeless people like selling all kinds of appliances and things all over. And it was just definitely a vibe like something was teetering, like the, 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 the people that lived there for years and years are now being pushed out of their buildings. So mm. it was tense, but it also felt, you know, chaotic and, and gritty. So you want to capture that yeah. feeling? Yeah. Okay. I don't think this is a movie for me. Sorry, man. <laughs> <laughs> I shot Barbie. Remember? You're right. <laughs> You're out. That was, that was it. <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's kind of like that. Um, first of all, for me, the main thing yeah. is to listen. Right. And and listen carefully. I didn't used to do that. I remember when I I, I my, in fact my first meeting with a director in the U.S. I won't say the name. But, um, you know, I got an agent from some yeah. movies I did before Amores Perros yeah. even. Uh, and so I flew to L.A. and I read the script on the plane and took down copious notes. And I yeah. got there to the meeting with the director. And I 
told him all these ideas I had, and I could later, in retrospect, I realized I talked too much. Mm. I gave too many. You, you caught and flossed. I did a hundred percent. Contemplas, yes. <laughs> I was contemplando. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't get the job. Yeah, and and uh, and I realized, yeah, you know what? Just shut up and listen. And that's what I've done ever since. And and I think it's worked because. Also, it helps me understand what the director is, you know, trying to do and then pr- build on that. Right. But, I mean, when you worked on that, uh, the, what is it, Amoris Peros? Yes. With uh, Inaritu, what was your relationship with him? Was it different? Like, with these, with the, the movies you shot in Mexico, mm-hmm. was there, uh, what was the learning curve on that? Yeah. Uh, that, well, I'd, I'd actually worked with Alejandro on, on commercials, many commercials before that. Oh, okay. So you guys so knew, we each, knew other. each other. Right. And I noticed as we were shooting this stuff how it was changing. Because he was also the creative. Yeah. He was also the owner of the ad agency. So he was writing the stories and then directing them. But usually there were these little comedic pieces that were bizarre and extreme. Yeah. Uh, and just weirdly funny. And and then he started doing little dramas. Yeah. And, and I said, hmm. So I thought, this guy wants to make a movie. And I admired his talent very much. Yeah. And then I could tell he he really knows what he's doing. Yeah. So, um, and he didn't go to film school, by the way. Um, so he was a, a, a DJ, a radio announcer. No. Before. Yeah, that's, 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 I, so I had heard his voice in the radio a long time before like I music? met him. Yeah, music. He had this. Uh, he 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 was the head of this radio station. Well, he be- got there. He started out as you know just as a, a, an announcer, and then became the head of it. And it was WFM, and he'd go like WFM Radio in La Ciudad de Mexico, and he speak very fast. I can't do it. He speak very fast, and, <laughs> yeah. and the sound was very interesting. They do weird things with the sound, and uh, yeah. Anyway, so uh, finally I met him for commercials, yeah. and I, I put the face to the voice, and we started doing all this stuff. And then I said, hey, Alejandro, if you do a movie, I'd like to shoot it. And he said, well, funny you'd ask. Yeah. And he gave me the script for Amores Perros, and that's how that started. That's crazy that that guy, this genius filmmaker, is a DJ. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's definitely into music and and uh But that's how he started. That's it's wild, that's man. That's how he started. And then later we learned that one of my first movies, one of these uh, you know, low budget uh, cheap movies that I did, uh, he actually composed the music for. Come on, which one? <laughs> I think it was um what was it called? Uh, Asesino del Zodiaco. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It was a horrendous you know, horrendous movie. movie. Yeah, but but I loved it. For me it was Gone with the Wind. You know, as I yeah. was shooting it, I was Thrilled to be doing. Was it a feature? No, a feature. Yeah, I did some even before that on sixteen millimeter feature films. This was the first one on thirty five that was actually shown in a cinema. That's why I always call it my first movie. Yeah, I don't even think it's on your credits. It might not be. <laughs> What's it called? Uh, Asesino del Zodiaco. Oh yeah, I see it. There we go. Christian Gonzalez. Yeah, Christian Gonzalez. Yes, I remember him well. Yes. <laughs> Three weeks shooting. Three weeks. That's pretty quick yeah. on film. Yeah. Boy, you knocked that out. Yes, yes. Had to rush. The producer at one point, the first shot we did, uh, the dolly bumped, and I, and I asked, can we do one more take? And the producer, Rodrigo, come over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, listen, we can't be doing two two takes of everything. Come on. <laughs> like, oh, Jesus. Okay, that's how it's going to be. <laughs> Dude, don't be crazy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one's enough. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, but when do you feel like, you know, like, what did you learn from working with the... Uh, in a ritu, I mean, like what, like there, at some point, you have to create some sort of almost symbiotic 
feeling with directors, I guess sometimes quicker than others. Yeah, yeah. Well, Alejandro, you know, we had this friendship sure, already. Sure. But, but uh, and, and I was a veteran <laughs> in a way because uh, even though I'm a little younger than he yeah. is, but he he done all this other stuff before I had been doing movies already. Yeah. Amores Peros was my ninth movie. Right. But um, it, it I, I loved from the very beginning his passion, his focus on every single aspect of filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. Sound, for example, editing. He knew already you know, what a shot would sound like. Uh, and and when we were shot listing together, yeah. we'd discuss, you know, the shots and how we we're going to approach a scene, you know, with the yeah. camera. And and I, I picked up on 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 uh, describing a shot with the sound it would make, you know. And then we go to an insert and, yeah. and then the wide shot, you know, and each shot has a sound to it. Yeah, so yeah. that vibration, I've sort of kept that throughout my careers. I'm sometimes operating the camera yeah. and I'm making noises and sometimes the sound, you know, the boom operator will stare at me like, shut up, man. Yeah. But it's just part of it is uh, to me. Yeah. Uh, images have a, a, a noise, a sound. But it's also on you, like, you know, I, in, in my minor, my small experience in making movies or being in movies or TV that, you know, you have to make suggestions you know, practical suggestions about coverage, right? Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, it just seems like, you know, directors have a vision and they're managing a lot in their mind. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's a sort of like, are we going to do a two or you want to come around you do the master, then we'll go in and do it. That's, that's on you a lot of times. A lot of times, and it varies enormously depending on the director. Yeah. Ang Lee, for example, yeah. he makes all those decisions and uh, and he's very specific about the focal length, about the camera height, all these things. And was he a cinematographer? No, but but he, he, knows. he knows his thing, and and he uh, um, he's just very specific, he, and, and he con he likes to control everything. Uh, other directors will you know will see a rehearsal and they'll turn to me and go, so what do we do first, Rodrigo? What do we do? You know, and, I'll, <laughs> and then I'll okay, how about we do you know, and then I take over that yeah. part of it. Yeah, and it, so it's 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 it is, varies enormously. Is that more the norm? No, no. Um, I would say it's kind of somewhere in between. Uh -huh. And and well, Scorsese, for example, he he does a shot list of the whole movie himself. Yeah, he'll sit down in a room alone and will take the script and and each uh, sentence or paragraph will be okay. This sentence is a close up. Oh, really? And and this this part here will be a, a dolly in, you know, on the script itself. And he calls it his annotated script. So then he explains this to me, and and we spend a, you know three days where we go through every single shot. But he's of the not movie. talking lenses; he's just talking no. the way it looks. Exactly, he's he's describing the uh, the energy and and what he wants it to feel like. Right. And and but I now understand because of what he's explained. Yeah. What I can do to bring that you know to to the screen, and but by the way, it's it's the best masterclass in the universe for filmmakers and I'm right there I'm in the front row nobody else is there except the assistant director and I'm learning all this stuff of why he wants to shoot a certain way yeah but you that know? like I mean your relationship with Scorsese came much later I yes. mean you'd already worked with I mean like even Spike Lee's very specific yes right and you shot uh, 25th Hour yeah and he's very you know that must have been interesting because you know yeah. he kind of breaks the rules a little bit yeah. in terms of film and, and and he sometimes does shots that are uniquely his. Yeah. You know, those weird kind of you know, walking shots that are clearly on a dolly. <laughs> yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Love those. But yeah. but so he must have come at you with like a very specific palette. Well, uh, with him it was interesting. He said uh, two things. First he said, I want to shoot every scene with two cameras simultaneously 
in opposing angles. Yeah. Which is a very challenging thing lighting-wise for cinematographers. Yeah. So that was huge for me learning how to do that because I've applied it later in my career. But at that point, it was just really trying to figure out how, you know, because it's at the same time, you have to figure out the background and, and light that and light yeah. an actor. And whatever lighting you're doing on one of the actors will affect the lighting on the other actor. And, you know, it's kind of like, it's complicated. It must have taken hours to light each scene. No, but I didn't have that time. So I had to like really figure out ways to do it quickly and efficiently. Yeah. And, and uh, but what he also said is, okay, I want six, distinct looks for this movie yeah that's it he didn't say what looks he just said <laughs> six distinct <laughs> so that was great for me because then i got to propose all these different ideas so how about this section we do with this technique and i i I'd shoot tests show him the technique yeah and if he liked it then we did that and if you see 25th hour there is these different feelings and different different sections yeah. that are very very uh particular i mean oh, you can actually notice a difference and it is something that I have been doing to maybe a more subtle way in, in, in every movie I've done, actually ever since Amores Perros, because even there I did a little bit of that. Yeah. Where there, the different sections have a different technique, different type of focal length. Well, I or, mean, well, you did, well, that uh, the other Inaritu movie, that Babel, that's yeah. very specific for each yeah. you know, story that exactly. is going on. Exactly. And there, yes. are, like, in, there was a Japan story, too. Yeah. And then you had to sort of like, you know, kind of get those lines of Japan, mm -hmm. you know, which is very, I don't even know how you would describe it, but it, you know, compared to Morocco, it's, it's almost like Legoland. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that's a very good example of Babel because uh, they're different countries, different cultures, yeah. but it's the same movie. So right. how do you maintain, uh, uh, you know, something that's uh, akin for the whole movie and yet you feel like when you go to a different country, it smells different. How do you represent that visually that, yeah that was and and we so we shot with different formats so uh morocco was 16 millimeter cameras wow and, and so it has that grain structure you film know, film yes oh, there's that, no digital. That, that was before yeah the digital was starting and in fact i remember one of the the producers were hey why don't you shoot japan with digital because then you'll be able to shoot with no lights and so i shot tests in tokyo with at that time the viper camera and film yeah and showed them that I could just as easily shoot with available light in Tokyo because there's a lot of light with on film and digital and the result was infinitely better. Um, but uh, so we shot it all. Yeah. But um, so, for example, talking about Japan. Yeah. This is, I think, a good example of what you do with cinematography or what I try to do, which is the main character is deaf, deaf mute. Yeah. So how do you represent that visually? So... I they're doing different tests, but we ended up uh, filming that section with anamorphic lenses. And these lenses, even though we weren't widescreen, normally anamorphic lenses are, are used to do widescreen. Yeah. Uh, but we were doing 185, which is a, a, a format that's a little tiny bit more square. Uh, but uh, what they do is that the background gets a little uh, out of yeah. focus. Yes. So, so the feeling when we're filming her. Yeah. Is that you don't see what's around her? It's muted. It's muted. Exactly. It's out of focus. Just uh -huh. like she can't hear well, she we can't see either. So I always try to do that. That make the the lenses we use, the lighting, you know, all all the elements. I try to put in service of what the character would be feeling. Interesting, of course. But that like, but as you go on in your career, you your toolbox gets bigger, right? And you learn more techniques. That's exactly it. But I mean, when you did like. Like um, Frida, mm -hmm. 
I mean, did you feel responsibility as a Mexican to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a big thing. <laughs> yeah. Frida was a huge. And of course, growing up in Mexico, you you know, Frida is such a big part of yeah. our culture. And Diego Rivera, come on. Sure. I mean, his murals are everywhere. Yeah. You know, as a child, we saw them all the time. And it's something you study and revere. And now I'm shooting that movie. What you was know? it like working with Julie Tamer? Julie was amazing. And she also is very um, respectful of, of the culture she's portraying. You know, she uh, really if that movie was made now, they would have been mad it wasn't a Mexican director. A hundred percent. It would be impossible nowadays to do a movie about Frida. That, right. Yeah. So uh, I, I think um, I was fortunate because Julie is such a incredible creative and director. Yeah. And the, the things she would do. I mean, this was her second movie, I believe. Titus was first. Yeah. And she approached it with such freedom and, and our meetings talking about uh, transitions and ideas where anything goes in a way, right? She wasn't um, technically savvy, so she wouldn't be worried yeah. about how do we do this? No, it was like, how about this and that? So now it's up up to us to figure out how to do that, the production designer, myself, and, and also to propose ideas. And it was like, an, like just a a creative table where we'd be spitting out ideas and something would catch, you know. But you also knew in the back of your head that, you know, given the art of Frida and the art of Diego, and, you know, I'd imagine with dealing with the character of Frida, those colors had to play into it. Mm, oh, yeah, absolutely. No, that They're was, very specific. Yes, that was a big part of it, the color palette. And, yeah. Yes, and of course, the production designer, you know, incorporated a lot of that, and, and yes, the, the, the film stocks we used and all that. But a funny story, I think, is yeah. that after Frida, I did 8 Mile, the movie 8 Mile with Eminem, Eminem in yeah. Detroit, Michigan. And they, we had a scene in the movie of Frida that happened in the Detroit Institute of the Arts because Diego, at one point, went there with Frida, and she was in the hospital bed, and, and she wasn't doing good. Uh, I think she had an abortion yeah. there around that time. Yeah. And uh, Diego painted these murals there in the Detroit Institute of the Arts about the auto industry. Yeah. So oh, when yeah. I, yeah, it was big, right? Yes. And, uh, yeah. So when I finished Frida and I went to start preparing 8 Mile, first thing I did was go, go there, go to see Diego's murals. And the colors that he used for, to portray the industry... Yeah are the colors that inspired me for the lighting of 8 Mile. So so there's these, um, the murals have kind of a cyan, blue-green. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, I've seen that. Light. I mean, there's yeah. a lot, right? It's yeah, very long. It's long, yes. I don't know where I would have seen it. Maybe I went to that. Is there, are they still in Detroit? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right there. Yeah, I think the I've seen them. Yeah. And... Um, so it, it and, and then there's a molten steel. Yeah. And so I emulated that with light bulbs that are orange. You know, so it, it was taking kind of my Mexican culture through the way of Detroit. Yeah. Into a movie about hip hop, which is interesting and weird. Well, that's, but that's your art. I mean, that's your contribution. That's what you come to work with. Yes. <laughs> How'd you not get The Revenant? Well, uh, it turned out at the time I was working with Scorsese, it must have been... Maybe silence already. So uh, it, it turns out when I when I met uh, Scorsese and he started talking about Wolf of Wall Street, this was one of those meetings that was one from one day to the other. Yeah. Rodrigo, Scorsese wants to meet you. Get on a plane. Go to New York. So I went and met him. And and after the meeting, and, and I learned that he did indeed want me to do yeah. the film right yeah. away, they told me. And I called Alejandro right away. And I said, listen, you won't believe what just happened. And he's like, what? Wait. No, I'm going to do a movie. We're going to do The Revenant. The what? The Revenant. Oh, 
Yeah. I didn't know the anything about yeah. it. We, yeah. Because we're friends. We yeah. don't talk about our project. We just right. talk about life, right? Yeah. So, uh, but both movies couldn't happen because both were with DiCaprio. Yeah. Right? So, right. So, Wolf of Wall Street happened. And so, I did that. And then right, at, right as that was ending is when he started preparing Birdman. So, I couldn't actually do it because I was still finishing Wolf of Wall Street. So, he hired Lewiski for Birdman. And I helped out with some additional photography. Yeah. And then The Revenant. I don't remember where what I was doing, but... That's sort of what happened. But, you know, we're still best friends, and okay. hopefully I get a chance to do another movie with who, him. Who did The Revenant? That was uh, Lueski, El Chivo. Oh, yeah, oh he did, yeah. Yeah. Is he Mexican guy? Yeah, he's Mexican. And you know him too? Oh, yeah, he's a good friend. <laughs> he's a, he's the one who <laughs> shot Alfonso Cuaron's first movie. He's the one who saw my short films and asked me to... That's the guy. Do this, that's the guy. Oh, everything's connected. Uh-huh. So let's talk about then, like this, because you are nominated... Mm-hmm. Um, for uh, the Scorsese movie, yeah, whose name I always m- mangle, Killers of the Flower Moon. I get moon and flower in there. But, it, you know. <laughs> but um, this relationship, now I imagine coming up, you were a student of his movies, right? Yes, absolutely. And did you have movies of his that were, you know, important movies to you before? A hundred percent. Raging Bull is my favorite. Oh, uh, it's the best. I, yeah. I watch it at least twice a year. Yes, I watch it often too. And in fact, one of my most prized possessions is a poster on, on my birthday when we were shooting The Irishman. My wife purchased a classic poster of Raging Bull and had Scorsese and De Niro and Joe Pesci sign it. Uh, so, uh, yeah. No, it, it's, it's my favorite film. I love it. Yeah, it, it's it's, you know, I mean, in terms of like, Editing, cinematography, and just sound. Yes. Because I remember realizing that, you know, the way they, when they did the ring stuff, especially some of the, you know, the the way you go, you know, like that. Yeah. Almost sounded like animal noises. Yeah, well, he did use, yeah, like elephants and stuff. He did, right? Yeah. That's crazy. So what was it about that movie? Just the layers of... To me, it was uh, something that I think I didn't realize at the time but uh, first it was certainly the the way it was done you know and the and yes the photography the editing and the sound yeah I, I found the sound startling and hearing all these things that were happening off camera and the ambience of the tenements and all that was to me was amazing and and the, just a story and and i've come to realize that one thing that i love about scorsese's films is how he takes characters that are morally reprehensible in between yeah. quotes and yeah. and uh and looks deep into their souls and what is this is a human being like all of us right yeah but has done these horrible things yeah. why how how does that happen why does this person do this and in not I, even posing a, an answer just just trying to understand yeah it. and also because of the the catholic thing that hangs over yeah. all of it it's the the idea of redemption right and sometimes that doesn't even come or exist it's yeah. just you know, yeah. And even yeah, on Killers Jay of the could, Flower Moon, same Jay thing. could barely get his brother to hug him. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I know. So, so that to me is very profound, and uh, I I really enjoy going as a f- cinema viewer, right? Going in in there, going yeah. in, into these um, dark recesses of the the human soul, and, right. and and looking at my own darkness, and 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 then as a cinematographer, same thing. You know, I I'm not, I don't see myself as you know, someone who will figure the shot out. And right. Will, you know, I see myself also as a filmmaker as well. So, or storyteller, let's say, yeah. you know, and I tell stories with a camera and sure. with the lights and 
you know, and and it's uh, maybe more abstract than writing or or even directing actors, you know. But there is feelings there and emotions that I'm putting there, and sometimes a lot of it I don't even understand, but I try to. But yeah, but you're the guy. You're you're the you know you're really the the first guy that sees it in a way. Yeah, that is true. You know, with all yeah. the yeah, everything set and the, you know, Scorsese is going to put the actors in position, right. but you're the guy that's you know engaging with it emotionally first. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And it's and, wild. and and everybody's work actually comes in through that lens. Yeah. If it doesn't come in through that lens or it's not lit, you know, then it doesn't exist. And that's any, on you? Anymore. That's on me. Yes. No shit. <laughs> yeah. Of course it is. So, but the first movie you did with him, that was after you worked with Ang Lee and it was after the Oliver Stone, Alexander. Yes. You did a couple with him. Yes. How, and documentaries too. The Putin documentary. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Are you guys buddies? Well, he did save my life. Putin. What? Putin saved my life. Stop yes. it. Not true. Really? Yeah, I was, I was shooting <laughs> this um, two-shot in the Kremlin, and, and it's Oliver and Putin talking, and I'm walking backwards with a camera. Yeah. This long hallway in the Kremlin. And I didn't know there were these steps behind me at a certain point. Yeah. So, of course, I I start falling because, I, I you know, the steps are right behind. Yeah. And I was very close to them, wide-angle lens, and Putin yeah. grabbed my arm. Yeah. And stopped me from falling backwards down, down. these steps. And then he said something in, in Russian that yeah. the translator said was, you owe me your life, something like that. Uh -oh. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he might call in that favor soon. Yes, oh he, my God, no. The Tucker Carlson thing didn't go great. He might need somebody to shoot another. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. No, but, I've done a couple of things with him. Also in, in uh, Ramallah in Israel, we did a documentary. And then with Fidel Castro, we did a couple of documentaries. With, with Oliver. Yeah, Comandante, it's called. So I met Fidel, you know, closely. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> what's the difference? Like, what is the responsibility as a cinematographer shooting doc? For me, shooting a documentary is, is much more technical. It's it's just get it in focus, get it properly exposed, yeah. and, and get the moment. Right. So as a cinematographer, I don't enjoy that as much, mm. but, you know, because it's... Huge responsibility, but without the sort of creative... Oh, right, because you can't go, can we do that again? Right, no, yeah. and oh, no, stand here, the light's better. Yeah. It's just like, okay, just capture it, you know? But the the experience you leave, live doing these things is what's amazing, and, and that's what's unforgettable. And unforgettable. I yeah. mean, imagine all this time with Fidel Castro right there and, you know, getting to and spend Oliver. hours with him. And Oliver, too, yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot. Yes, it's a lot. <laughs> unforgettable. But, okay, so, you know, you start working with Scorsese on, on Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Now, what did he know coming into that? What was the collaboration? What did, what, because that movie, there, there's something very specific about that movie. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with that, that room, with yeah. those men. Yeah. You know, that yeah. keeps growing. And yeah. eventually they're doing backflips and their testosterone is building up. Yeah, oh, but yeah. there's that one shot that kind of repeats itself at the, at the scope of the entire brokerage floor. Right. Yeah. And just the insane energy. Uh -huh. So what do you what do you bring to that movie? What was your contribution other than just shooting it? What yeah. were your ideas? Okay, well, uh, the, a funny thing uh, you you mentioned. What did he know? Well, yeah. what I found refreshing and inter interesting is that he on our first meeting after I was hired. Yeah. So now it's a meeting where we're going to actually talk about how we're making this movie. Yep. He said, "I don't know how this movie is supposed to look. I I I I don't know." And I was, well. 
How about how about we make the you know the look of the 80s? We emulate how movies looked in the 80s. He said, I don't really know how movies looked in the 80s. And I'm like, come on, you should you did the you know after hours and yeah. you know. And he's like, yeah, no, but I was uh, not, you know, he didn't seem so connected to that era. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's when I started shooting, you know, so I know very well, you know, how things looked back then. So that was sort of the first, the, st the starting point. But then it became to me about, again, the character, Jordan Belfort. So to me in the beginning, he doesn't really know what, he, what he's going to do. And, and then he gets clarity and he does this, this thing, you know. Yeah. So I, I shot it with two different types of lenses. Uh, where we started with anamorphic lenses that again uh, that distort the image a little yeah. bit, and so you see the room these these office offices in the yeah. beginning, and the edges are bent a little bit with yeah. anamorphic lenses. Also, I used a little bit of smoke and diffusion, so everything is let's say a little bit murky. Yeah, and as he gets his mojo, I went to spherical lenses and the sharpest lenses I could find, and and everything was very graphic. Yeah. Now, now all the fluorescents are like perfectly lined up, and yeah. it became still wide angle but clearer. Yeah. So, and the other part that I proposed was this idea of you, since we were going to use uh, digital for certain parts of the film. Yeah. I was, okay, what can I do with digital that I can't do on film? And I was thinking about time. Uh, and 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 how to utilize the uh, shutter, for example. So yeah. One thing I did when we were talking about the, the these drugs, the uh, what do they call the the ones that, that quaaludes? Quaaludes. Thank yeah. you. Okay. So uh, I started learning what quaaludes do. I've, I've never done them, but I asked questions, and uh, I understood that it relaxes the muscles, basically. Yeah. Right. So and and that's why he speaks like a slur. Yeah, yeah. So I thought, how do I represent that visually? So what I did was I I used a, in a digital camera. You can open up the shutter to almost a 360 degrees, which means that each frame is exposed double the time. Yeah. And then I also shot it at 12 frames per second instead of 24. So that now it's four times the ex, the yeah. exposure time for frame. Yeah. So the image is blurred. Right. And and so if you look at the film, you'll see that when he's there on Quaaludes, <laughs> the image looks blurry, like, yeah. G -g 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 -g. Yeah. you know, so there are these sort of things that I, I you know, presented these ideas, shot tests, and yeah. of course, as I like them, and there you see them. Was he the like, movie. oh, it's great. Yeah, yeah. basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love that movie. Yeah. Oh, and then you work with Cameron Crowe in the Zoo movie. Yep, that was He's great. a nice guy, right? Cameron is the best. That was uh, so much fun, and, and he, he's lovely. That was one of those where we'd sit down to shot list together, Yeah. and he'd play music. He'd play a song. Yeah. And read the scene, yeah, and and then it'd be really up to me to design the the shots. You know, he obviously had ideas and all yeah. that, but most of it is okay. What do you? And so I'd say, how about this? We do this, that, that, yeah, that. yeah, yeah. And if it jived with the music, he was all for it. And in fact, he told me I remember that when he wrote scenes, he wrote them with a song in his mind or playing even a song. And he said, if if the scene doesn't raise to the level of this song, yeah, out it goes. You know. Right. Yeah. And and with uh, Ben Affleck on Argo. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've been nominated a few times, haven't you? Four. Four times. This is the fourth. What were all four of them? It was Brokeback Mountain. Yeah. It was Silence, The Irishman, and this one, Killers of the Flower. Now, uh, be before I space it out, Brokeback Mountain, you know, what was, you know, what was your intent visually on that one? Well, the first thing for me was... A relaxation after shooting Alexander with Oliver Stone. Yeah. It was insane, you know, and all these actors and battle scenes, and it was intense. Yeah. And uh, I loved the experience, but 
when Ang Lee asked me to do Brokeback Mountain, it was, okay, good, a quiet film, two right. characters. And, and he said to me that he loved Amores Perros. That's a movie that he'd seen that I shot that he yeah. loved. But he said, but I don't want you to do that. Yeah. But I know that he said, talent is talent. So I'm sure you'll be able to do this quiet, static movie, you know, as well. Even though it, maybe you did this crazy, you know, uh, yeah. well, crazy handheld film and the, and the energy of Amores Perros. He wanted something. The, 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 the characters don't speak a lot. You know, they're pretty quiet. Yeah. So he wanted the camera to be like that. Yeah. And uh, so it was um, fairly, the, the look was fairly simple, you know. And, and one thing that Ang does, he, the camera's always at the exact height of the eyes of, of the character. Yeah. The main character of the scene, you know. So, yeah. So, and as I said, he's very specific about the focal length and all that. So my thing was more about capturing, you know, the feeling of being there. And, and we shot it in Canada, in Calgary. But, yeah. you know, we were trying to make it as if it were Wyoming. And I guess for me, it was going back to my, the roots of my other side of the family, the Stambos, because I grew up in Mexico. So the Prietos, this, this political family that I yeah. grew up in, uh, you know, very intense. And, you know, and like I said, my grandfather was you know, a firebrand politician yeah. and they fought in the Mexican Revolution. Yeah. And I, I, I had a cousin also who joined the guerrilla movement in the 70s and was killed and, you know, like intense political family. Yeah. And growing up in Mexico too. So Brokeback Mountain is a story about these gay cowboys, men in Wyoming, that herd sheep. Yeah. Just like my mother grew up in a sheep ranch in Montana. Okay. Not, yeah. not in Wyoming, but in Montana, close yeah. by. And my uncle, he became a ballet dancer, you know, a gay man in, yeah. in this environment and with sheep. So, yeah. so for me, it was kind of going back to that part of my roots. And you felt that poetically. Yeah, I sure did. Oh, that's, well, that's great that you can draw from that. Yeah. We didn't talk about Almodovar either. That much, oh, yeah. But he, it seems like Almodovar got a pretty specific sense of color. Oh, yes. And that, like, that's his thing. Yeah, it's it's funny. He he told me when uh, when I went to Madrid, you know, we'd met on the phone. So I fly to Madrid, I'm hired already. And he says, the reason I chose you is because I know that being Mexican, this is a cliche, right? Yeah. Being Mexican, you won't have uh, shame about color. Pudor is the word he used. You won't, <laughs> yeah. you won't be ashamed of using color. I'm yeah. like, okay, okay, I'll take that. All right. Yeah. It's a cliche, but all right, whatever you <laughs> yeah. say, Pedro. Yeah. But, uh, but yes, he, he, he loves color. And, and also the set dressing is essential for him. Yeah. He'll arrive every day, you know, to see the set before the shoot or the day before, whatever yeah. it might be. Always throw a fit every time yeah. because something's wrong. <laughs> yeah. And 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 he'll he'll ask a, an assistant or something, go to my house and get that painting, the one that's next to my, you know, and also get the lamp that you know. He'll redress it with his stuff. Yeah. So that's why his his apartment looks like his movie. You know, <laughs> he has a very specific that's taste. Crazy. But I, I I love him. It was great to work with him. With with Argo, now because like if maybe I'm wrong, it, it seems like if I'm thinking about it that. Maybe something you learned in Morocco during Babel could have applied to some of the stuff you did with Argo. Mm -hmm. Yes. In, indeed, uh, the whole Ira Iranian section of yes. the film, we had originally thought of shooting on 16 millimeter as well, just like in Babel. Yeah. But uh, shooting tests, um, I felt that it wasn't sharp enough. Yeah. So uh, we ended up shooting a uh, 35 millimeter negative, but just kind of zooming into it and using what's called two perf. You know, film normally uses four perforations yeah. or the sprockets. 
and that you'd create the whole image with all that space. So we used only the two perforations. Yeah. So it wasn't as small as 16 millimeter, but smaller than 35. So the grain structure is more present. Okay. And we also gave it a, a developing style that's high contrast and and uh, like an Amores Perros. Yeah. So the whole part in Iran has that feel, that sort of newsreel documentary yeah. style of the era. And uh, and then, again, separating the fields, uh, the, or the feelings. The CIA, for example, fluid camera, mostly Steadicam. Yeah. Kind of, the, you know, the, the sort of thrillish style where the camera's just yeah. moving around. Also inspired very much on all the president's men, some of these uh, office rooms. Yeah. How they go from desk to desk. And, yeah. You know, it's always active. And, yeah. And uh, Hollywood. That, I created this look that emulated, uh, again, ectochrome. Uh, but this was... Um, That's right, yeah. This was a, a, a sort of a reversal electrochrome, the sort of high, very saturated color of... of, of the, in this case, it was um, film stock uh, for, for motion pictures. So the, each story had its its very specific feel. That's interesting. So do you... Now, do you have these conversations with, like, Ben? Oh, yeah. Do you say we're going to go the two perf? Yeah, and definitely. And it's four, and it's like, okay. Ben is very technical, actually. Yeah. He he totally got it when, when I said two perf. He was like, oh, okay, let's try two perf. And he knew, he wasn't bullshitting. He knew exactly what I was talking about. And and when I showed him different types of lenses, and he understood the subtlety between the ultra primes and the cooks. Huh. He, he could totally tell and 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 also learned. I mean, he's, he's brilliant. Uh, things he didn't know, as soon as he saw them, now he knows it, he understands it, and he uses it. That's great. Yeah. So I and and then like I imagine with uh, when you do silence with Scorsese, when he presents that to you, were you sort of like, well, this is a different type of Scorsese movie? Oh yeah. And yeah, I, and I imagine you were able to integrate some of the uh, Brokeback Mountain meditative quality. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> true. You know, he he. We did Wolf of Wall Street. The last day of the shoot, yeah. we go to his trailer. And I think we opened up champagne and we're celebrating and very happy. And he hugged the assistant director, Adam yeah. Somner, and myself. And he said, he told me then, Rodrigo, I'd like to shoot, I'd like you to shoot silence. And yeah. I was blown away because I knew that this is a movie he'd been wanting to do for decades. Well, yeah. uh, more than 10 years. Yeah. And it just hadn't happened yet. And suddenly he's asking me to shoot it. And uh, so I was thrilled. Um, and then the process began, you know, of, of scouting. We went to Taiwan. That's where we did it. It's supposed to happen in Japan, but we shot it in Taiwan. And, uh, yes, he actually said, you know, um, I think the, the look of this film, people expect this Scorsese camera movements and that sort of thing. And, and but this, it's not appropriate for this film. It has to be sort of silent <laughs> so yeah. again yes like Brokeback Mountain yeah. you know so the camera is you know there's some odd angles sometimes yeah. you know top shots and here and there we have some uh, camera moves with f moves but for the most part it's very simple and static and, and even the lens choice all of it was based on sort of what it we thought it would feel like to be there in Japan at the time and the flies are buzzing and you know and it's hot and you know just sort of very realistic in a way yeah, it's a beautiful movie. And then like then you get to shoot like a legit old style Scorsese movie, The Irishman. Yeah. It's good incredible. some gangster stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, gangster stuff. And then and then the the whole last section of the film, you know, that's that remembering your life and right. what was it all about and what was it for and those glory days that were based on murdering people and how, you know, the character lost 
his family and everything. And that's... was there was there ever a suggestion during the the shooting or with Scorsese that may, may or may not be true? Oh yeah, yeah. But we decided that um, this is the story we're telling, and this is our truth. Okay. And uh, even if it's not exactly what happened, but the, you know, the, yeah, this uh, is the story. So we decided to believe it. Yeah. And and uh, it's believable. Yeah. So, uh, and I think it's you know Scorsese putting himself. In in Frank Sheeran's uh, yeah. f- shoes, you know oh, how yeah. Scorsese has his incredible career, and now he's older. And and how how does it feel, you know, to remember all these things and and what did what did it mean, you yeah. know? And uh, in this case, it was. And will he ever tell anyone that he killed Jimmy Hoffa? Exactly. <laughs> I think Scorsese is not ready to reveal that. <laughs> no, but uh, but there was one thing that I remember he told me then was he wanted uh, he wanted us to approach it just like the character approaches his killings, which is a job. Yeah, it's methodical. Yeah, he said it's like clockwork. You do this, you do that, you do that. So the camera behaved like that. It just uh, traveling frontal with a car or sideways. Uh, you know, th- there's. It's graphic and it's kind of simple and to the point. Yeah. So that was the basis. That's of interesting because you can talk. feel that. It's like just drives him to the plane. Right. Gets on the plane. Yeah. Picks him up when he comes back. Exactly. Oh, that's yeah. I, uh, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, Killers of the Flower Moon. In some ways, it seems like outside of it being, you know, in Oklahoma, and in the. What year was it? 18 something? 18, 19? Uh, uh, well, uh, the main part of it is like 1926, 24 to 26. But there is a similarity between, you know, some of the other Scorsese movies and how he shoots, right? Mm-hmm. So what what were the, what was he telling you to do? Well, um, yes, there are similarities in the way the, the camera behaves too. Yeah. You know, like when... The character, uh, the Caprio plays Ernest yeah. when he's in the train and the camera goes through the train yeah. car and, and to reveal him. And later also when he gets off the train and we have a big wide shot where you see the train station, the camera swoops into him. It's, it's, it's a way that he uses and he's used also in the past of saying, this is, this is where we are, but this is what we're focusing on. You yeah. know, it's the, the big picture and the the intimate individual story. Yeah. So uh, those are the type of shots that that he, he does. But uh, the the way we we approach it was evolving constantly because the the script itself changed completely from when I started prepping. Yeah. It was a script much more similar to the book. Yeah. It's based on, on and that book is focused on the FBI and Tom White's the main character the, yeah. the FBI Jesse Clemens character Jesse Clemens so DiCaprio was going to play that character yeah and uh, Eric Roth wrote that script and it was a great script too but it was very different yeah it was a story of Tom White oh. and 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 how he discovered who the bad guys were. yeah so then both Scorsese and DiCaprio were mm, we're not sure this is a focus we want and and uh, Leo himself at one point said you know when I f- see this story the character that moves me is Ernest I'd like to play him. So then everything shifted. And Paramount decided we're not doing that movie. <laughs> oh really? Yeah. They they were they were gonna produce the that the first the FBI version, movie. The FBI movie. So then we were studio less and, and uh, we had I'd already been prepping in Oklahoma, then it all fell apart and then COVID hit and you know, so it was a long period of gestation while the script was being rewritten and, and a new I heard studio. A rumor, I heard a rumor 
Paul Thomas Anderson, did he have anything to do with this? Group? I've heard that rumor too. But you don't know. I don't know. You know. I don't know. I don't. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Um, yeah, but there they were, they were people involved in, sure. in re-jigging the yeah, story, yeah. And, and Scorsese was very deep into that. Yeah. And and as, as well DiCaprio. Yeah. So Apple got into the play, and, and that's where it resurrected. And now and Paramount, in fact, distributes the movie in, in cinema. So it wasn't like a divorce, you know, but sure. they just didn't want to put the resources into into this different to story. embracing a Scorsese bad guy, right? <laughs> exactly. Huh. Yeah. So um, uh, then that gave me time also to kind of think of how to you know how to evolve, how to change that look, and to yeah. test stuff. So so uh, when we got back into pre production, I already had all these notions and and started showing Scorsese images and. Then shooting tests and and um, you know seeing what he liked and he was at the moment so involved in the script and all that that he kind of was letting me run free for a little bit uh, with all these ideas and stuff and then he started getting inspired too and throwing ideas as well and we tested all sorts of things from well, pinhole photography infrared all sorts of well things. it seems like yeah it seems like especially with the with the Native Americans that there was something about composition that was reminiscent of those documentary photographs mm -hmm. of the era. Yeah. Uh, you know, that were you know, sort of trying to show examples of the pride of Native Americans. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know what you drew from in terms of still photography, but mm -hmm. did you? Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned that because that really became the basis of the look of the film, not only in composition, but I thought, okay, this movie is... Uh, a representation of the story of the Osage and the FBI. Yeah. At the same time, we see in the film these newsreel images, for example. And towards the end, we see a radio show telling that story. Yeah. And stories are also told with still photography. So I, I thought that basing the look on, on still photography was a way of showing that we're also telling a story that's being remembered. So um, I decided to, this is where we ended up, uh, looking at the beginnings of color photography, yeah, I got deep into autochrome, which is a technique to create color that the Lumiere brothers invented in Paris. I think it was around 1917. Mm. And so I started testing digitally. Uh, we shot on film, but digitally emulating the look of autochrome colors. It, it's a it's a system of of creating kind of transparencies on glass uh -huh. uh, plate, with with potato starch and dyes and all sorts of. Funky you were doing stuff. that? No. Okay. I was emulating that, okay. but I studied many autochrome photographs. Yeah. To understand what the color, what was happening to the colors. Okay. How grass looks, how an apple looks, oh, how interesting. Yeah. the sky looks, how so so we created what's called the lookup table LUT, to emulate autochrome because it's also an import from Europe. Just like the white people are imported from Europe, yeah. you know, the, the descendants of the settlers. Yeah. Uh, so everything that has to do with, with Ernest and Hale and the white folk, I use this LUT of autochrome. And the Osage, the scenes that are just Osage, we shot completely naturalistic in terms of color. So green is, you know, is green and, and all the, the foliage is the actual yeah. color and the sky, you know, so it's naturalistic. Right. The Europeans are autochrome. <laughs> And and so then, so I showed these ideas to Scorsese. He liked it. I shot tests. He loved it. And then he said, so then what? How does the, the, the look evolve? So I said, how about we pick a moment in the movie 
where things shift and we and we change to some something else. Okay, what would it be? And so I thought, well, we a technique we used actually in the Irishman before was uh, ENR, uh, which is a technique of printing film, motion picture film. Yeah. That adds contrast and takes away color, and it's pretty dramatic. Yeah. So, um, so we decided that once the Molly sisters' house explodes, Rita's house, and yeah. Bill, and all hell breaks loose. Now, from then on, we don't differentiate between the white people and the Osage. Everybody is seen through ENR, high contrast. It's uh, it's harsher. Yeah. The image is harder. Yeah. So uh, the let's say the last third of the movie has that look to it. And also the lighting, I, I evolved into something sometimes uncomfortable. Like Ernest, we see him several times in hot light, either from a light bulb or yeah. on the cells or in the interrogation. He has this ugly light coming from above or in the courtroom. He's giving his uh, deposition, whatever you call it. And I put direct sun on his face, which is a movie light, but it feels uncomfortable. It feels hot. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. when you're in a place and the sun's hitting your face, you're not comfortable. Yeah. So I, I tried to to do that with his character. Was the turn, it seems like around the time of the fires too, that De Niro set. Yeah, that's that's part of that too. Yeah. yeah. That, that whole sequence. And also, precisely around there, things get, we allowed ourselves to be a tiny bit surrealistic because... Um, it's kind of hell now is um, yeah, it looks developing like it. everybody, you know. How'd you shoot that? Was that all intentional? Kind of, and yes and no. It was one of those things where you design something and something else happens that it did, you didn't expect. In the case of the fire scenes, we had two cameras. One was shooting a wide shot with the house and the fires and the people moving around, just a wide shot. Yeah. And then we had a, another camera with a very long lens. So it's like a, you know, like a, a telephoto, like yeah. Like a telescope, let's say, uh, who, shooting just some of the people through at the distance. Yeah. So I had fires, uh, special effects fires with pipe pipes yeah. and gas and stuff, way in the distance to create silhouettes of the people. And then we had another layer between the camera and those people that had another layer of fire through pipes. And then I had th close to the lens, off camera, just a a pipe uh, uh, to create heat waves. Yeah. So I knew that with these heat waves, there'd be a distortion to the image, but. What I didn't count on was that the second layer of fire created a much stronger distortion to the image. So we're actually seeing through the the heat, wave. heat waves yeah. and, and it created this. We we first of all we couldn't get focus on the the actors in the distance. Yeah. And then I asked the focus puller, okay, pull to the distortion. So move the focus closer and then suddenly it came alive, you know. So we were actually putting focus on the on the heat waves themselves. And right. that's that's what created those weird silhouettes. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. Yeah, the hell it was. Uh, yeah, and I remember when we were shooting. It's we all were surprised, and Scorsese was loving it so much that he kept shooting it and, <laughs> and asking uh, the choreographer to move them this way or that way, and it was just mesmerizing. Oh know? wow! And he's got a very specific way of choreographing violence. Yes, right. Yes. In fact, on the Irishman, he purposefully violence. He wanted to shoot it and show it in the same thing, similar thing actually on on, on this film. In a very uh, dry manner, where where it's maybe on a wide shot, yeah. you know, it, it's not dramatic and in your face yeah. and sexy. Right, the opposite. Yeah. It's ugly and 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 boom, it just happens. You right. know, in a second. Yeah, done. Yeah, you know, and so we see some of the murders of the Osage in in that manner, where it's just yeah. simple. We don't do a close up, dramatic close up of the guy and the gun close to the lens and the focus pulls to the you know trigger. Yeah, sure. None of that. Yeah. The sweat none of that. 
Yeah. You know, so, so, uh, it makes it more disturbing in a way. Exactly. Yeah. From I, the I, distance. I feel so. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, I thought it was a, a stunning movie and you know, the details, yeah. you know, there's gotta be so many more details. Oh, it's, of, it's a lot. Like every <laughs> shot that, you know, had oh, to yeah. deal. but, but how do you go from that to, to Barbie? These are, these are like, <laughs> we, you must've been, it must've been a relief in a way. <laughs> <laughs> to, to be like, I'm just here in the studio, and it's, and it's one look, basically? Right, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was pretty intrigued by by that, by being in, inside a studio. You yeah. Know, I have shot many things in the studios, but not most of a film. And, and besides, with a look that's supposed to feel like you're in a studio. Yeah. So uh, that was really attractive and interesting to me. But uh, when I was prepping Killers of the Flower Moon in yeah. Oklahoma and Bartlesville during covid uh, I got the call from Greta. Yeah, and and what uh, had she seen that made she made her interested in you? Um, I'm trying to think of a joke. What is <laughs> better? No, uh, you know, just uh, many movies. She didn't actually yeah. say what it what it was, but um, so I started actually. You know, I was still in prep of Killers of the Flower Moon, and on Sundays I'd talk to Greta, do zooms with her and with Sarah Greenwood, the production yeah. designer, and talk pink. You know, and yeah. and. Uh, how do we now you see the film and you're like oh yeah of course yeah but designing all that took a lot of thought and it wasn't scripted really precisely of you know what yeah. this world would be like so we had to invent it really and and obviously based on the toys and all that but um it was it was a challenge and then, and then so finally i told greta listen this is fun and all and i'm loving it but i gotta stop these sunday zooms because i have to focus yeah. on Killers of Flower Moon and yeah. I'll be as focused yeah. when we're doing Barbie. You yeah, know? I'm in Oklahoma. I'm in Oklahoma <laughs> in the, and it's not pink around Early here. 1900s. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> With the Osage and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, but uh, I do actually enjoy very much that, jumping from one genre to the other. After Silence, for example, I, I almost immediately did Passengers, this science fiction movie. Oh, yeah. Again, that was in the studio. Obviously. Yeah. But uh, like that, it's, uh, like I said, Alexander to Brokeback Mountain. You know, it's it's kind of been that way a lot in my career. And uh, Or even uh, Amores Perros, the next one was a movie called Original Sin, and then Frida. You yeah. know, all of them, they're just very different. So I've sure. been lucky that way and because I really enjoy that just doing very different things and i try not to have like the rodrigo prieto style you know although there has to be something like you even said before that carries through i don't know exactly what it is but i i don't do it on, on purpose for, i think for at sure. least probably your intuition about mm. the subject at hand mm -hmm. <laughs> that sense. that's you know but i mean i and i imagine that working in a studio in a controlled environment uh, that takes a lot of things off your plate Yes, and it adds some more, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. No, it's uh, one of the challenges on Barbie was making it kind of feel like we are outside, even though we're in inbound in a studio, but I wanted the sunlight to feel pretty natural. Oh, okay. You yeah, know, so, yeah. so that's, uh, creating sunlight is very challenging, making it believable. Uh, Greta called it uh, artificial authenticity. And and so we wanted to feel the walls, feel that they're painted, that the yeah. mountains are cut out. So right. We wanted to feel all that, but at the same time, I wanted the lighting to feel pretty realistic, except for one thing. One of the rules that I suggested to Greta is that it's it's in, in Barbie Land, it's always backlit. Yeah, the sun's behind the actors, so it creates this beautiful glow on their hair and their yeah, shoulders, yeah. and the light on their faces is yeah. soft. Right, you know, and that's because every day is perfect in Barbie Land, so every angle is perfect in Barbie Land. So when you jump to Venice Beach, when you jump to the real world, mm. 
What's your concentration on? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to not photograph tourists uh, taking selfies and then taking photos. I mean, it was crazy. It it was that moment was when we realized this movie is going to be a phenomenon. Yeah, because so far we'd been secluded in those in sound stages in London. Right. So we came to Venice and and people went bananas when they saw Ryan, Ryan and, Margo, and, yeah. and Margot dressed in the, this, those costumes and and uh, it became this viral thing. You know, everybody took photos. Yeah. So it uh, suddenly it blew up. Um, what was but, your what was your concern about the light? Well, yes, there, there was uh, big concerns. First of all, we did want it to obviously feel different because now we're in the real world, yeah. and it's things aren't perfect, right? But we also wanted part of the idea behind the whole film is that the imperfection of life is beautiful, the messiness yeah. of, of life, right. and that's what Barbie finally you know learns and yeah. embraces and decides. I want to be mortal and and be able to even die and and uh, and and be not perfect and have cellulite and yeah. all these things. So um, so it was making the real world look uh, messy, but also not ugly. It it shouldn't it didn't have to be you know off putting. So it was kind of finding finding that balance where it felt gritty, kind of gritty, right, where, right. But but where where you, you believe it and say okay yeah that is Venice sure you know. Uh, but we shot it in the summer. Yeah. And first of all, all the people in summer in Venice, but also I actually requested, and I was turned down, to shoot that part first, so that we be shooting when the sun is lower. Yeah, it's not so much on the zenith. Yeah, uh, which is not a shoot not, it first before the the sound studio. Yes, oh. because otherwise we did what happened. We we ended up shooting in the summer, so most of the day the lighting is not. Um, it's not very good on actors' faces. You oh, know okay. what I mean. So, and I, I knew I was. It was very going to be very difficult to control this, and you know, in these big exteriors. So, it was just all about scheduling. This angle we have to shoot from eight thirty a.m. to nine thirty, and this other angle we're shooting. And then when it's noon, we're going to go to this other area, and we're going to cover it with diffusion, right? Things like that. Wow. Yeah. And did you watch some musicals? Yes. Before? <laughs> yeah, we did. Yeah. We saw Singing in the Rain. We saw uh, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Was that the first uh, dance sequence you'd ever shot? Uh, on the movie, yes. Yes. Yeah. You know, music videos. Yeah. I've done oh, yeah, yeah, some yeah. of that. But uh, yeah, it was my first. I, and I I loved it. You know, and, and Greta created this um, uh, playlist with songs. And yeah. it was all lots of disco songs. Sure. I, I remember growing up, you know, in the late 70s, uh, early 80s. And yeah. uh I was all against disco. You know, I was one sure. of those. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah me too. rock yeah. and roll. Yeah, man. Disco sucks, you yeah. know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Got yeah, that yeah. T-shirt. Yeah, yeah, totally. And But now it's like, okay, yeah, I actually do like disco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. You grow up. Yeah. And uh, I like the, uh, the, the riff on Saving Private Ryan on the beach. Yep. <laughs> yep. In fact, we we storyboarded sometimes imitating shots from Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. But, you know, also I, I closed down the shutter. I did this technique that also uh, was was done on the film Janusz Kaminski did. You know, with a closed shutter, and that's the only part where in Barbie Land it's not sunny. Uh, every, every other scene there's sun. On this one, we decided to go kind of overcast and make oh. it. You know, but uh, and then the slow motion. That was okay. I'll say this here exclusively. I hope Greta doesn't hear this. Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure it was my idea, but I'm not 100%, but uh, that the slow motion 
is not actual slow motion. It's acted slow motion. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, so then it was the most fun was seeing all the actors trying to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. You know, trying to act like they're you know yeah. running, but they're not running. And you know, and yeah. it was. And then an explosion happens, and the reaction to it in slow motion. Yeah. And then at a certain point, Greta would say, now! And then everybody went up to regular speed, right. right? Oh, that's great. It was hysterical. That's funny. <laughs> it was very funny. Well, I guess, you know, when we're going to find out whether you have uh, a specific sensibility is when your movie comes out. That's right. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> then we're all going to know what's really going on. How... and. It, but, I mean, did you struggle with, I mean, you must have a fully realized sense of what you, what's what's this movie about? It's called Pedro Paramo. Okay. And this is based on a novel with that name, yeah. which is a very famous Mexican novel of, yeah. that was written in 1950, well, it came out around the 50s, but it was written since the 30s. Yeah. Juan Rulfo is the author. And he, it's a kind of book that everybody reads in high school in Mexico. Okay. So we all read it, everybody. And, yeah. And it, so it's a classic of classics and and it's a a strange story that happens in the during the around the mexican revolution before and after so part of the story starts in the late 1800s and ends in 1927 around there period piece period piece and and uh it i won't reveal a lot of the story for those who haven't read it yeah there's a new translation by the way by douglas weatherford which is really great okay i highly recommend it pedro paramo and it's uh Again, many kind of layers. You know, it's it's there's the surreal and the and the real, and it's not exactly magic realism. But Gabriel Garcia Marquez was completely inspired on this novel in his creations of magic realism. Yeah, this I would say is more surreal yeah. than than magic realism. But there's part of it is completely realistic, and other parts are surreal and and like a nightmare. And uh, so it's a pretty challenging film. Also the I, I guess I, sometimes I'm a little irresponsible and people keep asking me, why did you dare do this? This is yeah. untouchable. This novel is like, you know, well, such that's a classic. Why. Yeah, I know, but it's been tried twice before. Oh. This is a third adaptation. Okay. And it hasn't worked yet. Hopefully the third is a charm. Well, that's great. But, uh, the, yeah, one was in the 60s and then another was in the 70s. And now the the Netflix produced. And one one good thing is that now we have visual effects and and um things that will allow uh, things that were impossible then you know like to tell the story that spans all these decades with the same characters yeah and just makeup and de-aging and yeah. also just visual effects to make the town look like a ghost town and then the same place look like it's thriving you know so it took a lot of a lot of work and and I co-shot it with a, a another DP Nico Aguilar so I directed yeah. and half let's say half shot it so I was deeply involved in the cinematography yeah, at all in the lighting right. and Nico you know helped me with that enormously that's exciting and very exciting yeah. and it's uh, it's all in Spanish yes yes and it you... would be unforgivable to do Pedro Paramo <laughs> in English yeah <laughs> and did uh, now well, how much did you have to do with the de-aging technology in The Irishman did you have to was that part of your job in a way just in the sense that the cameras had to 
have certain characteristics to oh. be able to do, for the visual effects to oh, do their to, thing. Oh, okay. We we had this thing we call it the three-headed monster or yeah. Hydra, where yeah. we had a main camera and to the sides we had two attached cameras that were capturing inf- with infrared light, and it was a whole thing. I see. So every angle, right? Even a Steadicam shot had to have these witness cameras. So the rig was much heavier than usual and took a lot more space than a regular camera. So I had to figure out all the you know rigs to like a, the the crane how how could it hold this yeah, camera? Yeah. So we tested and it didn't hold it. It didn't work. We had to reduce use special materials for the wow. cameras. You know, it was a whole thing. Did you did you have to use that for your movie? No, things have evolved thankful thankfully. Already. Oh good. So now we're using uh, it's a combination of actually artificial intelligence and artists yeah. where you see the face of the actor and it's uh retouched kind of like Photoshop, let's say, uh in certain key frames and then the artificial intelligence figures out the in between frames. Oh, wow. So that that way it kind of kind of creates this animation, but it's done AI uh-huh. to to transition from one frame to to the next. That's maybe you know forty eight frames later. You know, and, wow, and it, it's pretty incredible. And I'm, I'm, in fact, tomorrow I'm seeing some more some more of the shots. Oh, with that's this amazing. Thing. Yeah. All right, the last question because I didn't know where to put it in. I just keep thinking about it, and I just want to make sure I know when when they show when I see things about the color palettes of films. Mm. Um, is that something? That you decide before you shoot? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, very much. I mean, it depends certainly on the movie, but uh, it's something that's a collaboration between production design team, um, costumes, and cinematography. Okay. So uh, I sometimes use filters on the camera or sometimes the digital filters, yeah. and sometimes it's just color grading where you affect the overall image. So things happen to costumes, for example, that... Um, maybe a, um, a gray costume, it happened to me on Wolf of Wall Street. I, I, one of the scenes in, in one of the office spaces, I wanted to be lit like gold, the yeah. color of gold yeah, for obvious reasons. And uh, so the gray costume looked brown and the costume designer was pretty upset. I'm like, but, but it's, that's the color of the light. You know, so, so what I do is I try to shoot as many tests as possible with the looks that I'm going for, that sort of thing. Yeah. If the light's going to be cyan, like right. an eight mile, or if the light's going to be a certain color, make sure that every department sees their stuff in this light. Right. And and that we all agree on, on what the colors look like. Certainly on Barbie, that was a huge deal, you know, the, the colors. And yeah. We created another look, I was talking about look up tables, based on Technicolor. Yeah. Or in three-strip Technicolor that we called Techno Barbie. Yeah. But it was based on Technicolor, but we adapted it to the colors of Barbie Land. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a, uh, the colors is a huge collaboration between departments, and uh, certainly the director, you know, yeah. has the final say. But we we all present these ideas of color to a director, and then we take it from there. Oh, and, and uh, some of that happens in correction too. Yes, in color grading. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah, that's a big part. Wow. Well, this was good. This is a masterclass. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I I wish you luck. At the Oscars, but you do amazing work. It's a real honor talking to you. Thanks for doing it. Thank you so much. No, it's been fun. I really appreciate it. Right? How crazy was that? How amazing was that conversation? Uh, He's nominated for Killers of the Flower Moon, which is streaming on Apple TV+. Hang out for a minute, folks. Hey, folks. This episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. 
I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. You know all those times you've heard guests sneeze on the show. Well, actually, you don't hear any of that because we cut the sneezes out when we're editing. But take my word for it, people definitely sneeze in here. And when they do, I've got a box of Kleenex on the table right in front of them so they can use one and get right back to business. And here's what Kleenex means to me, a tissue that will hold up. We've all used those other tissues that you blow holes right through. When I see Kleenex, I know that tissue is up for the job. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. All right, folks, in case you missed it, we had an extra episode this week. I talked with America Ferrara about her life, her challenges, and her career, including her Oscar-nominated role in Barbie. But with the monologue, which I, which is like literally a, pa- a page of dialogue, yeah, I was like, okay, okay. We didn't really rehearse it that way. We talked about it a lot, but we didn't rehearse it. What was the conversations about, mostly? Themes or like what? It was a, it? It was... It was a lot about, we shared a lot back and forth between yeah. like poetry and songs and episodes of TV shows and articles and op-eds, like everything that kind of felt like related to the monologue, we spent months kind of sharing really? to kind of have a common yeah. language around yeah. what is the essence of what's happening here. And then, and then I remember closer to shooting, we had a rehearsal at her house that she was staying at in London and... We sat on her couch and like that felt more like it was making it incredibly personal, Mm. you know, which I I don't know how to do it any other way as an actress, but to make it deeply personal. And and that was about kind of us relating it to us, you know, she and I and like what how this plays in our life. That's available now on all podcast feeds, the episode right before this one. Next week, as I mentioned, we have Lily Gladstone on Monday and comedian Mae Martin on Thursday. And just a reminder before we go, this podcast is hosted by Acast. Here's some guitar, kind of neely.
lives, monkey in the fonda, cat angels everywhere.